Amen. Amen. Good morning, folks. Great to see you this morning. Great to see you. Can I just say this? The two ladies that asked that morning to pray for Vlad, Pat and Joan just sitting here. What a joy, eh? What a joy to see a young man walk into a building, no church context, massive drug addiction. God had done something through the reading, through him reading his word, and now loves the Lord Jesus, married to a wonderful lady. They've got three children. The little, little girls come along since that, since that uh, video. Three children and planting churches in Timisoara, Romania. Isn't that a wonderful story, folks? As a, if you're a Christian and your heart isn't dancing, go home and pray that God would soften it. Because that is a wonderful story. And you know what? We can repeat that story time and time and time again, where people have got hold of a Bible, read it, and by the Spirit of God, changed the lives of those people. Please never underestimate the power of the Bible. Please. And if we ever become a church, will we move away from this? Raise your hand, ask questions, and run as fast as you can away. Because you don't need my or Paul's opinion. You need what the Lord says in and through his word. Amen? It is the power of the gospel by which lives are changed. Amen? We dive into Exodus again. This is, we've split Exodus up into three parts. This is the second part that we're beginning, and you would have received a little booklet, Journey of Formation. It says a slightly different color to what you see on the screen. We'll sort that out for next week. But these booklets are here to help you. You'll see that there's some space in, you know, the nice little dotty paper. Everyone likes dotty paper for, for notes now, apparently. So the nice dotty paper to write some notes. And then there are questions that you'll be doing in your gospel communities this coming week. So it gives you time to think about that, to pray over them, to, to mull them over um, this coming week. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 15. Now, as we dive back in, and as you're finding Exodus 15, let me remind you, bring you up to speed of what has happened. God, in his grace and in his mercy, had heard the cries of his people who were in slavery in Egypt under the reign of a, an insecure, self-worshipping tyrant, the Pharaoh. Now, God is true to his promise that he makes to Abraham many, many years before. He says to Abraham, in and through you, there's going to be a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will also curse those who curse you. So God delivers God's people out of slavery through the leadership of Moses, but whilst also showing through many wonders that he was the one true God, and he would stop at nothing, and he brought down judgment on Pharaoh and his people because they enslaved and they refused to let them go. And last, the last sermon that we had just before the Easter break was where we saw God's people responding in worship. Responding in worship and singing to God for who he is and what he had done for them and what he promised to do in and through them. And we left it with God's people. And you would read that and think, that they would have no doubt that God loved them, God was present with them, God was going to protect them, and God would provide them. We were left with no doubt. But the problem is, human beings have to face real life. Let's read. Exodus 15, verses verse 20 through. 
Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and there they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Move your eyes down to chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Turn over the page to chapter 17. Verse 1. All the congregation of, pe of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandments of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Let's pray. Father, help us, we ask, to see the wonder of your word and your graciousness towards us who are so often a grumbling people. We pray these things for your namesake. Amen. Folks, the Bible is clear that the thoughts of the Lord are higher than our thoughts, that the ways of the Lord are higher than our ways. And if you are a Christian, you would agree that God in his word tells us that what he is doing in this life and for his people are for his glory and for our good. Amen? Amen. If you're a Christian, you believe that. And these are truths that we believe and we affirm. But my question this morning for all of us is this. When we find ourselves in difficult situations or experience circumstances that life in a broken world brings, are these truths the lens by which we navigate through those experiences? See, we can affirm and we can rejoice with real sincerity and real gusto to the wonders of the gospel and the saving work of the Lord Jesus, just like Israel did at the beginning of chapter 15. And folks, it would be right for us to do that, and it would be a good thing for us to do that. And we should respond in those ways, but it's real life that will expose the strength of your faith. Not your enthusiasm in a church service. See, Israel had just had an amazing worship service. 
They've been declaring their thanks and, and declaring their faith in God. A bit of a taste of heaven, we may call it. But it's one thing to sing the praises for their deliverance and quite another living out that faith when confronted with the problems of life. See, the setting that we see, look at this morning, is also the setting for the next 40 years for God's people. See, we see in verse 22 of chapter 15 that Moses took God's people into the wilderness of Sheer. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, they moved into the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai. And for the next 40 years, God's people would wander in the wilderness before they entered into the land that he had promised them. See, the wilderness was known as the place of death. A place where they would be confronted by situations that would be uncomfortable, difficult, and a period where the posture of their hearts towards God would be exposed. See, going through the wilderness for God's people was necessary. It wasn't necessary for their salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. See, God had already saved them. He'd freed them. They were free people. They were his people. And now he was going to help them to see what it truly meant to know him, to trust him, and for him to shape and change them to the people that he had called them to be. See, it was through Israel that the glory of God was to be proclaimed. It was through his relationship with his people and their relationship with him that the world was to see. See, folks, sanctification is the process of God making us what he says we are. He tells us that we are his people. He tells us that we are his children. He tells us that he loves us and he protects us and that he will be with us. He tells us that we can trust him. He tells us that we can see him and we can feel him and we can know him. But the context where that is worked out is in the context of a broken world where daily we hit problems. And it's in that that God shapes us to be who he declares us, declares we are. We are his children and he shapes us to be his children. We are his people representing him and he shapes us to be his people representing him. See folks, God saves you just the way you are but he refuses to leave you that way. I'm thankful for God for that. Are you? I am. He saves you just as you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. And he does that in the context of walking with us in the reality of life that exposes where we need him. And if we respond rightly, we see what he is doing in us and we see what he is doing through us. So this morning, there are three things that I want to see across these two chapters, the end of 15 right to the middle of 17. I want us to see three things. Firstly, I want us to see the first, the first two things are the responses of God's people when faced with the reality of life, and then finally, God's response to their responses as they face the reality of life. So number one, the people grumble, the first response. Three days after seeing God part the Red Sea and save them, they found themselves in the place where the water was bitter. 
And how did they respond? Verse 24 or 15, they grumbled. They moved on from there to the wilderness of sin, great name, (laughs) wilderness of sin again. And when they think that they don't have any food, verse 2 of chapter 16, what do they do? They grumble again. And despite their grumbling, God graciously provides. And again, in chapter 17, they come to a place where there is no water. And how do they respond? Verse 2 of chapter 17, they quarrel with Moses and they grumble against him. Verse 3. See, when faced with difficulty, even though they have seen the wonders of what God has done, even though they have sang praises to him in a wonderful, wonderful praise, praise service, when faced with difficulty, they begin to grumble. They begin to murmur. Do you want to know what the interpretation is? They begin to whine like immature children. Folks, this is so important for us to recognize and to consider as we get to this part. It's so important that the Apostle Paul, when he writes the church in Corinth, many years later, he makes reference to this. And as he writes about it in 1 Corinthians 10, he shares this. He says this. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Folks, what's interesting is that Paul tells the church in Corinth not to grumble like some of the Israelites did. And he says that grumbling is an overflow of idolatry. Do not be idolaters like some of them. And grumbling is a sign of idolatry. See, idolatry is when you put ultimate trust in anything else or anyone else other than God. And the reason why they grumbled here was because they didn't trust God. And like all forms of idolatry, it deceives and it distorts the truth. See, even though God's people had seen the most miraculous of miracles and they had been saved by them, and even though God had promised to bring them to the promised land, and even though they had affirmed this in praise, when they are faced with a real-life problem which comes about because of living in a broken world, they fail to trust God. They fail to approach Him rightly. And their immaturity and lack of faith in God and His Word is exposed. And what do they do? They whine. See, as you read this, I think it would be fair to say that God's people, Israel, despite everything that they'd seen, they had a grumbling spirit. Agreed? If you know this story, you read it through, they grumble a lot. They would have been great people to be around. (laughs) Folks, a grumbling spirit kicks in when we respond to things through fear and not faith. A grumbling spirit kicks in when we aren't happy with what is happening, often because we can't control the situation. See, a grumbling spirit first kicks in 
when we fail to remember the gospel and the evidences of God's grace. That's what they did. They'd, they'd failed to remember that God had saved them. They'd failed to remember the evidences of his grace. They'd seen the Red Sea part in two, for crying out loud. They'd failed to remember those things. They failed that God had provided so much for them. See, what's, what's interesting and what is true, all God's people had to do was ask for water and ask for food and he would have provided. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to grumble. All they had to do was ask and he would have provided. See, what's wonderful about God, and we'll look at this more later, he provides when he hears their grumbling. He provides even when he hears their grumbling about it. How much more would he have loved to provide if they'd just asked him? Folks, do you fail to remember the gospel and the evidence of God's grace in your life? Maybe that's an indicator why you grumble. See, a grumbling spirit forgets what God has promised. Look back at chapter 15, verse 26. What does it say? What does God say to them? He says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all the statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. They forgot what God had promised. They forgot that God would protect them. They forgot that what they saw in terms of the judgment that came upon Egypt would not be put on them. So often, folks, we grumble because we forget the promises of God. So often we grumble because we want to shape our reality and we want to move forward in our reality with our words as the arbiter of truth, with our feelings as the arbiter of truth, and we forget what God has promised. And therefore we grumble. A grumbling spirit and posture often misses the reality of the situation. See in 16 verse 2, what do they grumble about? On this occasion, they grumble because they say they have no food. But what's interesting, in 17 verse 3, when grumbling about not having any water, they accused Moses of taking them out of Egypt to kill them. To kill them, their children, and their livestock with thirst. So they did have access to food. They did. They could have drank milk. They could have ate cheese. And they could have eaten meat. But they confused what they wanted with what they needed. And folks, a grumbling spirit also exaggerates the circumstances. Either of the situation, which they did, because they did have access to food, but also exaggerate the reality of their former life. See that in verse 3 of chapter 16? Basically, they say this. It would have been better if we died in Egypt. At least we would have died with full stomachs. See, grumbling people who forget the evidences of God's grace, who forget his promises, often look at their situation, exaggerate it, often look at their situation and miss the reality of it, and then try and make through the reality of the unbroken, of the broken world that we find ourselves in from our perspective. Folks, can I tell you this? That breeds a grumbling spirit when we seek to live through this life with God out here. And we're still. When we grumble about that situation, 
whether we are grumbling to ourselves, whether we are grumbling to, grumbling to someone else, or whether or not we are grumbling about those who are leading, ultimately we are grumbling about God. We are saying to God, your ways are wrong in this situation. I wouldn't do it this way. If I was in your position, I wouldn't let this happen. Now, folks, please hear me on this. This is not to say that circumstances that life brings and that God leads us through are not difficult, not confusing, not weighty, not sad, and not bitter. More often than not, they are. But what we experience need not make us bitter. It need not. See, we either respond in faith or fear. And a fearful response is not freeing. Because it says, I know better, and if I had control, I would do it different. But the reality is, more often than not, we are not in control, and ultimately God is in control. So to grumble is an overflow of spiritual immaturity, idolatry, and a lack of faith. Even though God's people had seen the wonders of what he had done, knew the promises that he had made, when faced with the reality of living in a broken world, their first response is that they grumble. Number two, their next response is that the people complain and put God in the dock. Have a look at chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. See, the grumbling of God's people were accompanied by complaints. And their grumbling and their complaints meant that they moved to a position of actually putting God to the test. See, God was leading them in ways that they did not like. See, the reality of their life was exposing immaturity, but also a lack of faith to who God was and what he was doing, despite knowing everything that he had done for them. Now, folks, this level of fear, grumbling and complaint, turned them to putting God in the dock, putting him to test. See, we see there in 17 verse 2, Moses responds to them, quarreling with him, and he says, what does he say? Why do you test the Lord? Why are you testing the Lord? And as you read through verses 1 through to 4, you see three complaints, three grievances that they put, three indictments that they put against God as he is in the dock. The first one is this. They make a demand on God's provision. Verse 2, give us water to drink. See, this is a demand. This is a complaint. Give us water to drink because they believed in this moment that God wasn't providing. The next one in verse 3 of chapter 17 brings a complaint that flows from a denial of God's protection. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Was it to kill us? Was it to kill our children? Was it to kill our livestock? A denial of his protection. Worse than that, they actually assume the worst of God and the worst of Moses. They accuse them of attempted murder. Do you see that? Why did you bring us here? To kill us? Is this the reason why you brought us here? See, this comes from a posture of believing that God had abandoned them. It's a belief that what God is doing is harmful and not helpful. So therefore, God, you're in the dark. And in 
verse 7 of 17, what do they say? Is the Lord amongst us or not? Is he even here? Where are you, God? See, they had failed to bring to mind all that God had done for them, and therefore they doubted his presence. Are you going to provide God? Are you going to protect us? Are you even with us? See, they brought a covenant lawsuit against God. God who had promised his presence. God who had promised his provision. God who had promised his protection. They were testing the covenant maker against his own covenant. And like so often, when we put God in the dock, they had already come to their verdict. They'd already passed sentence. How do we know? Verse 4, because Moses says, they're going to stone me here. They're ready to stone me. See, just a note for leaders, right? Moses is the leader of God's people. He turns to God and goes, God, they're going to stone me. They're almost ready to stone me. See, the tone of Moses' approach towards God is also, at this point, a tone of grumbling, a tone of complaining, a tone of testing God. What shall I do with these people? What does that remind you of? In the garden? When Adam is called out because of his passivity and because of his sin, what does he say? It's not my fault. It's this woman that you gave me. What am I to do with these people that you've given me? You better hurry up because they're going to kill me. As leaders of God's people, if you are a leader of God's people, if you have any influence over God's people in any way whatsoever that is good, right, and positive, we are called to trust the God of our salvation in the sanctification of his people and ourselves as we shepherd the people for which God's Son shed his blood. We are to trust God, we are to rely on him, and we are to lead his people from that position of faith, we are not to complain to him about the church that he has given us to lead. So leaders, don't grumble about your people and don't put God to the test. See, the response of fear when life exposes can lead to putting God to the test. And we find ourselves saying and thinking things like, if you truly provide and give me this, I'll trust you. If you really were going to protect me, why would you let this happen? And are you really with me, God? Folks, do you put God to the test? Do you do that? In your thoughts, in your words? Do you only acknowledge the faithfulness and goodness of God when he comes through in the ways which you want? It's really interesting, isn't it? When great things happen, we always say God is good. And when bad things happen, we don't really know what to say. You know what the right answer is? God is good. Does your vision for his grace, mercy, and provision, kindness, and work in your life only come into focus when things go well? Folks, if that is the case, you need to pray and ask God to help you mature. See, the reality of this life as a believer is that we are walking through the wilderness as sojourners, and we are not entitled to an easy, comfortable 
life. And any talk of that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is. The life of rest and comfort in all its fullness will come when Jesus returns and we will rest with him in a new creation where there will be no place of death. Amen? Amen. And the mature believer has faith that as we travel, God in his grace is present, is protecting, is providing, and he shapes us to be the people he has called us to be. Folks, let us not be a people who complain. Let us not be a people who, who put God in the dock. The first two responses, they grumble, they complain, they put him in the dock, and this is how our God responds. God responds with grace and provision that satisfies, sanctifies, and saves. When I was a kid, the one thing that we weren't allowed to do in the Robbo house was to whine and grumble. We used to have a saying in our house that I cannot say, all right? Because all sorts of authorities would come down on Phil and Pauline. It had something like, whingers will be, hmm, and whiners will be, hmm. All right, basically, that was the mantra. It was not allowed, and the consequences of grumbling in our house were not something that you wanted to experience. <laughs> Especially when we grumbled about not being happy with something that mum and dad had done for us or not done for us that we wanted. Zero tolerance in the rubble house for grumbling and whining. And as you read this, you may think of the people of Israel, you ungrateful group of so-and-sos. <laughs> yeah? Look what God has done for you. I tell you, if you were my kids, I wouldn't give you anything. Amen? You all say amen to that because none of you are like God. I'm telling you now, you ungrateful, you, you're getting nothing. Because none of us deal in grace well with our children. Do we? No? You read all the books that say you need to show grace. We, how do I show grace? You know what I mean? You get nothing. Winders will... No, I won't go there. It's interesting. Let's praise God that we are not him. <laughs> and we're not in control. Especially when we think of the amount of times that we've grumbled and we've put him to the test. See, if we were writing the story, we would have given up on these as soon as they walked into the wilderness. We would have. If we were God, we would have given up on them straight away. But God, in his response to their grumbling and their complaining and their testing, is grace and provision. He is gracious towards them and he provides and we see fiercely that his grace and his provision satisfies. In chapter 15, God turned the bitter water sweet. He also gave them shelter in Elam. And in chapter 16, he graciously provides for them food daily, which he will provide for them in this way for the next 40 years. He not only provides in the light of their grumbling, he provides abundantly. Abundantly. 
See, on the evening of the day of them grumbling in verse 11 of chapter 16, God provides them meat to eat through the providing of quails, small little birds. But he also tells them that in the morning and every morning, six days a week, he will provide for all of them bread that they will need for each day. And each day after the, the, the dew of the morning had gone, there was like like a flake-like substance, like frost, verse 14 says, left on the ground. And it was like coriander seed and white in color. And it tasted like wafers made with honey. I'm trusting that it tasted nice. Because as I'm saying that, it doesn't sound nice. But they loved it. It provided, and the people called it manna. God satisfied his people by providing for them each day for 40 years. And he satisfied their hunger. Providing for their needs till they came into the promised land where he provided in a different way. Folks, we have a God who promises to meet our needs in every circumstance that he takes us through, in the way that he chooses. It was the Lord Jesus who said, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Let tomorrow take care of itself. You who are worrying, can you add one hour to the day? No, you can't, so don't worry. He then says, look at the birds, see the birds? They don't worry about where the food's going to come, but my Father provides for them. How much more will I provide for you? God, even though we are fearful, even though we grumble and moan, God graciously provides and he graciously satisfies. He meets our need. But more than that, he not only meets our physical need, he satisfies the hunger and the thirst of our souls. Folks, it was in the Gospel of John, in John 6, we're making reference to this very situation in Exodus 16 after Jesus had just fed over 500 people with five loads and two fish. John records this. Let's read it together. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Folks, the manna was a picture of how God would ultimately satisfy. See, the issue of hunger and thirst, yes, are physical needs, but they are a great illustration to the yearning of the human soul that Jesus says he will satisfy. I am the bread of life. See, God graciously provides in ways that truly satisfy past any meal that you could have. Amen? See, God, secondly, graciously provides in a way that sanctifies. 
As God graciously provides the manna for God's people, he gives them instructions, doesn't he? He gives them instructions regarding how much they should gather and when they should gather. They were instructed to gather an omer of manna for each person. That was about two liters, verse 16 of chapter 16. Then they were told in verse 19 not to leave any stored up till morning. Because if they did, it would go off. And in verse 20, some people didn't trust the word of God. And they stored it up and it stank and it bred worms. And on the sixth day, in verse 22, they were told to gather enough for that day and enough for the next day. The Sabbath day, because that would be a day of rest. And what they had saved up on the sixth day would be enough for them on the Sabbath. And whatever they stored on the sixth day would not breed worms and would not smell. However, despite the instructions of God, regarding the saving of food, people still went out on the Sabbath day because they did not believe. And God says to Moses, verse 28, he says this, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? How long will you do that for? Folks, what we need to see here through this and all the instructions is that God was not only filling their stomachs, he graciously, through the provision and the instructions, was also shepherding their hearts. See, God could have provided unlimited manna all day, every day. He could have done that. But in his grace, he didn't. And the process of instruction, which wasn't there to withhold, but rather instruction that meant that they would be fed, was given to see if they trusted God. Was given to see if they trusted God to be true to his word and to provide for them the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. I could talk about this for a long time, but for the sake of time, folks, there are many things that we could take from the story of manna, but the basic and foundation thing is this, God will provide for his people giving us what we truly need, and the process of that grace and provision shapes us as his people. He sent manna to sanctify his people, to teach them to depend on him, to remind them of his covenant love towards them, and to teach them that he was the source of life. Right at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses writes this in Deuteronomy. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Folks, God walks us through circumstances that are difficult to show us that he is the source of protection, provision in the midst of his presence and to shape us to be the people that we are. And if that's not good enough for you, well, you're not in the right company. Because when being tested in the wilderness by the devil, the Lord Jesus, when the devil said to him, here's rocks, you are hungry, here's rocks, turn them into bread. What does he say? He quotes Deuteronomy 8. 
man shall not live by bread alone. Even the Lord Jesus, in the midst of his incarnation, relied for the source of his life, God in and through the Spirit of God to live. God was testing them here, Israel, not to see if they were good rule keepers, but to see if their hearts were inclined to be his people. Folks, entrusting in the sovereign, gracious God is the struggle between fear and faith. That's the struggle. It is the trusting of God in these moments that shape our hearts to respond and to live as his people and to know him more intimately. Joel Spurgeon, the 19th century great preacher, the prince of preachers he was called, when talking about a mature spiritual response to God's provision and presence and protection, he said this, when we can't see his hands, we can trust his heart. When we can't see his hands, we can trust his heart. So folks, the question is, do you trust him for his grace and for his provision? If you are a believer here this morning, God is sanctifying you through whatever you are going through. Whether that is great blessing or whether that is great difficulty, God is there and he is shaping your heart. And remember, folks, if you're trying to get your head around it, if you are not happy with it, you can take that in glorious lament to him. But remember this, his thoughts are not your thoughts and his ways are higher than your ways. If you are a believer here this morning, is your heart inclined to trust him? Is it inclined to believe him? Is it inclined to be obedient to him? See, in the midst of walking through a broken will, God graciously provides in a way that sanctifies. And finally, as I close, God graciously provides in a way that saves See, the people in chapter 15 needed the bitter water to be turned sweet. They needed, in chapter 16, food to be provided, which God did. And in 17, there was no water, and they needed water. But rather than ask, they complained. Rather than asking, they put God on trial. And like I said before, they deserve the judgment of God, not his grace or his provision. But what does God do? God says, gather around. God says to Moses, get some of the leaders, some of the elders, like a jury. And he says, come out to the rock by Horeb. Take that staff that was a symbol of my judgment against the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And what I want you to do as I stand before the rock on Horeb, I want you to strike that rock with that staff of judgment. And as Moses did, fresh living water poured out of the rock and the people drank. Folks, the people put God on trial and he, rather than punishing them, submits himself to public judgment so that they could live. Again, whilst writing to the church in Corinth many years later, Paul, making reference to this, writes this in 1 Corinthians 10. 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. What this showed as Moses struck the rock was that God would submit to the blow of his own justice so that out of him would flow life for his people. Like the rock, Jesus, folks, was struck with the divine judgment of God for a grumbling, complaining, ungrateful people like you and like me. And on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for our sin. And like the rock, water flows from Jesus, but this water is the water of life, which we drink, and when we drink, we will never thirst again. And in the same way that God was with his people, Jesus the rock is with his church. And we can trust him for his provision. We can trust him for his protection. And we can trust him because he is present. Folks, let us not be a people who forget. Let us not be a people who grumble. Let us not be a people who complain. Let us remember who he is, what he has done for us, and that he is transforming us to be his people that he declares that we are. His children for whom he gave his own son so that we could be right with him. Amen? Amen. We may grumble and complain, but we have a gracious God who provides in ways that satisfy, sanctify, and saves us. Amen? Amen. It's interesting there, just at the end of chapter 16, God's people are told to take an omer, two liters of this manna. And they're told to take it, and they're told to put it in a container, in a jar, and they're told to keep that for all the generations that come as a reminder that God was with them and God provided for them. And it's interesting, again, later on, the Lord Jesus, when making reference to this, talks about the true life is found as we feast on him. True thirst is quenched when we drink on him. And like the Israelites of old who took that omer of manna to show that God was with them and provided them in the midst of their grumbling and their complaining, we too this morning have emblems that remind us of God's grace, protection, provision that saves and sanctifies and satisfies us as we break bread and drink wine, knowing that Jesus Christ took a divine punishment that each and every one of us deserves so that we could go free. And for generation after generation, the Lord Jesus has said to us, eat, drink, and remember till I return and you then will experience the fullness of what it is to rest in me. Folks, we're going to break this bread and we're going to eat. We're going to pour this wine, this juice, and we're going to drink. And together, if you have resonated 
with some of these things. And the, by the Spirit of God, He has brought conviction on you and challenge on you. You can bring that to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that His death and the spilling of His blood is enough to wash you clean. Can I also say this? That because we are in Christ, we are in Him. We are in him in his death. We are in him in his resurrection. Even in the midst of our grumbling and our complaining, God the Father looks on you and he is not disappointed. That's how gracious he is. Isn't that wonderful? He's not disappointed with you. The problem is so often in the midst of our grumbling, we live through this life and we walk through this life thinking that we can't get out of it because God is just looking down on us, just deeply disappointed with the way that we are because of everything that he's done. No, if you are in Christ, he looks at you and he is well pleased. Amen? So in the midst of our brokenness and our sin and our confusion, if we name the name of Christ that we've grumbled and we've complained, he is gracious to forgive us of that. As a father that opens up his arms and says, just come in, sit on my knee. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let me shape you. Let me make you the person that I say that you are. You are my child and I love you. And let me remind you again how much I love you. I sent Jesus to die for you. Amen? So as we eat and as we drink, drink with glad hearts. Yeah, if we've been convicted, yeah, bring that to the cross. But eat and drink knowing that we have a God who is gracious in his provision for us. Amen? Let's pray. Let's eat. Let's drink and let's be thankful. Father, thank you. We praise you for your kindness to us. We thank you so much that even though at times we find ourselves not believing you and living out of fear, you are constantly still graciously providing for us. Open our eyes, we ask, by your Spirit to see how you are sanctifying us, how you are changing us, how you are making us the people that you say that we are. And as we eat and as we drink, we ask, Lord, that you would show us that. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be a people who rejoice in you. Help us not to grumble and complain. Help us to delight. And let's help each other as we do that together. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's eat, let's drink, and let's be thankful.